Hello students and welcome to Class of X, the free internet course on how to read and enjoy the X-Men comics better. I'm your teacher and host, John Reisinger, and today we're talking about Fabian Nicieza's 90s crossover event, Executioner Song. Welcome back, everybody. Today is going to be a bit of a different episode than the norm, but not completely different from what we've done in the past. Uh, while we will be talking about like the themes and characters and story of Executioner's Song, which spans across Uncanny X-Men, uh, Adjectiveless X-Men, X-Force, and X-Factor, um, it's mostly just going to be an opportunity for me to officially introduce you all to one of my favorite X-Men villains of all time. That you might not know much about we're gonna talk about strife strife is a fantastic character with one of the most amazing character designs possible he has one of the most pointy sharp costumes you could ever imagine he is over the top he is melodramatic he is operatic he is gay as can be and i've loved him from the beginning uh, his design alone won me over and then when you find out about his like backstory and his drama he becomes even more interesting to me he gets a little muddled in his later years when there was a lot of like retcons and timeline issues but we're not going to get into that today we're going to talk about his his ultimate moment which was uh this event called executioner's song um so we're back in 1991 um that's where i'm taking y'all come on everybody we're gonna go back to 1991 get in the car we're going back to the 90s um so this is when marvel is doing great i mean the x-men are on top everyone loves them and also the business is in big trouble <laughs> because they had all these plans and all these good things going for them. Claremont had saved the business for, for 16 years now. And then they, they launched and relaunched everything with Jim Lee in 1991. And then Claremont basically, let's call it calls Marvel's bluff and leaves after his 16 years of crafting these mutants. And so Marvel's like it's okay. We got Jim Lee. Jim Lee's great. He's gonna he's gonna usher in a new era of the X Men. And then Jim Lee leaves. <laughs> he basically hangs around for like honestly only like three issues of the X Men. But he really just he stayed around for about ten issues. Um, but uh, Jim Lee and uh, a well known uh, artist that you a lot of you know, um, Rob Liefeld, as well as a few other creators. Um, they were like, we're not making money, um, even though we are basically making your business uh, successful. Um, have you heard of that before in the entertainment arts industry? Have, does that sound a little familiar, y'all? Um, but they basically, they all were like, we're taking our ball and leaving, and we're going to start our own uh, comic book uh, publication company, and that's where Image Comics comes from. Um, if you didn't know, it was basically artists going, we could do better on our own. It's kind of like Don Bluth with Disney. I mean, he was making Disney films, but he was like, I want to make my own, and so I'm going to leave, and I'm going to compete with Disney, and he did for years, all the, all the way up until... He did it. Let's not talk about Titan AE. Um, but yeah, so Rob Liefeld, uh, like 
finishes up New Mutants um, with uh, issue 100 and then like launch relaunches New Mutants with a brand new title, X-Force. A lot of us know X-Force. We just talked about X-Force last episode. Um, but he hangs around for only about 11 issues before he leaves. And like I said, Jim Lee leaves after about 10 issues. Um, and so the X-Office um, is kind of in a crisis um and so they uh have to kind of scramble to figure out like who is going to take this over and and they they do find writers and artists to take it over but it it was a bit of a let's call it a hectic moment for the marvel office um on on top of all of that um the way that the industry had shifted thanks to people like um, Jim Lee and Rob Liefeld, um, among other artists, was that comics had kind of made a paradigm shift in really what the audience was following. Um, where previously you could almost define it as like it was a writer's game. You know, you had Chris Claremont, you know, leading the way with the X Men for so long, and he, and it's because of the writing. He was paired with amazing artists, but you know, once the '90s kind of came around, people were really jumping around and just kind of following the the illustrators, the pencilers, the colorists, and all that kind of stuff. And so that that was a huge shift in the fabric of how these stories these comics were created um and so executioner song kind of takes place during that era uh, it it even sometimes made for weird circumstances where the art was almost kind of predating the script like they'd kind of get together um a you know the bones of the story but then the artist was kind of like kind of do what they wanted and it was up to the writers to kind of make sense of it with the script and the lettering and all that kind of stuff and so if you read you read these comics and sometimes you get to moments and you're like i don't think i'm i totally understand what's going on like i feel like there's a moment at the end of executioner's song if you've read it where it it, it ultimately ends in this like big fight between cable and strife you know the 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 two penultimate you know uh characters of this story and they're fighting in this weird time vortex kind of dome and they never they never explain like why strife is in this dome. Um, they don't fully explain like what's going on with it. And it felt a lot like just writers looking at art and going like, okay, I guess Fabian Nicieza just had to write what was going on and, and we'll wrap it up. We'll wrap it up. Uh, uh, Cable will create a little bit of a self-destruct button that Cyclops will kind of have to have a Rosemary's baby moment and make the, a decision I'd like a similar decision. He'll have the, a similar uh, problem that he had previously with uh, cable and he'll make the same mistake. <laughs> um, but yeah, this was um, a artist's kind of era of comics, you know? Uh, and so that left Marvel with, you know, how do we keep this ball rolling? Cause the X-Men, like if you guys remember from an early episode of this show, when X-Men number one was released in 1991 and it was released with those four variant covers that all connected together to this really long, beautiful panoramic image um, created by Jim Lee. Um, that that was like, oh, we are we are on top of the world. X-Men is the number one comic in the world right now. And with the loss of all these, these gargantuan creators, they had to figure out how to keep the ball rolling. And that's what they did with this huge crossover event. 
Um, and so Chris Claremont, you know, he leaves and Jim Lee leaves. And so um, Fabian Nicieza, who we've talked about a few times on the show because he's written a lot. And I really do like a lot of Fabian's work. He's left kind of filling the shoes. Um, not to belittle like Fabian's contribution up to that point, but he was kind of taking over a big deal. But it, it worked. If you read Executioner's Song and you read a lot of Fabian's work, he's able to kind of continue these themes of how the X-Men sound, how the X-Men stories go. It is it is period piece drama. It is it is soap operas. It is melodramatic. It's just operas. Um, and Fabian would essentially run um, the X-Men and X-Force comics. Uh, not run, but he was really a huge part of it. Um, practically running in my opinion until about 1995 so for, there was like a solid like three four years there that um he was you know the voice of the x-men he was among the voice of the x-men but he was really crafting a lot of it him and people like labdell and and uh david peter david um peter david what's his name is david is the writer um anyways um, I kind of want to point this out, you know, because we I talk a lot about on this podcast, like these writers that I think have, you know, had important moments in the X-Men comics. And so if you're trying to find um, good places to pick up these series, I, I want to also tell you like good writers to follow, like read Claremont's, you know, stuff from the 70s and 80s. Read Grant Morrison's stuff from the aughts. Um, read Jonathan Hickman's stuff, you know, from the most recent era of the X-Men and, and, and even like Jerry Duggan and all them going on right now. Um, but also like, I this this era of the X-Men is very special to me. This was the era that got me into the X-Men. I am first and foremost a 90s kid with the X-Men and while I erroneously associate a lot of it with like Jim Lee, I'm like, "Oh yeah, Jim Lee. I love Jim Lee X-Men." Honestly, realizing now as an adult, I was like, "Oh, no, I like Fabian Nicieza X-Men. I loved these stories. I loved, you know, um Fatal Attractions and and stuff like that." Um and well, I I do love Claremont era, you know, like Inferno is one of the, the greatest crossover events ever. Um, it's fun to be able to jump into these decades um, later on and still have solid stories. Um, but uh, this wasn't always a solid story. Um, like I said, Leefield and Jim Lee kind of left abruptly in a sense. And uh, Fabian, basically he admits, um, he admitted in an interview that he wrote um, the outline for Executioner Song in about a week, which is insane considering this is a 14-issue crossover event um, that was going to need to keep the dream alive with the X-Men. Um, it, it was helpful that this was originally the intent of what Rob had um, planned for these characters. So this wasn't coming out of nowhere, but he definitely, Fabian definitely didn't have, you know, Rob Liefeld or, or Jim or any of them to rely upon to do this. Um, basically, the story goes that in about 1992, um, at a retreat that for the writers, they they decided to proceed with like Rob's plans to do this kind of massive event featuring Cable and Strife. Um, you know, uh, I, 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 this kind of had been leading up um, or had been building to a reveal um, a, a year earlier in X Factor. Like they had kind of, um, I think it's X Factor 
was it 64? I can't remember. Um, it had been heavily implied at that point that Cable was Nathan Summers. Cable had appeared, you know, in the X-Men stories in New Mutants, and he was this time traveler. Um, and But it wasn't until much later that it was even implied that he was the uh, son of Cyclops and Maddie Pryor from Inferno. Um, and uh, so this had been like breadcrumbs were down. Um, Strife himself as a villain had made his first appearance in New Mutants 86. Um, Strife was this uh, mysterious, charismatic um, mutant uh, terrorist villain leader who had uh, was kind of leading this organization called the Mutant Liberation Front. A lot of people are very aware of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, um, you know, Magneto's uh, uh, group um, that turned into Mystique's group. Um, but the, another, the other basically big, uh, I guess the Marauders are also up there with Mr. Sinister, but, um, a lot of you not, might not know the mutant liberation front and, uh, you know, and understandably not all of these characters from the mutant liberation front kind of, uh, stood the test of time and are still characters used to this day, um, in comics. A few of them have stuck around for quite a while and, and get the limelight. Um, wild child has been in a lot of, um, stuff for uh, the X-Men comics and Tempo as well. Um, even most recently, Tempo was really featured, which is great because I love Tempo as a character. She's this wonderful um, queer time control mutant that um, I'm so glad she's gotten some extra moments in time. Um, but yeah, so uh, Strife kind of appears and is leading this, this mutant terrorist group um, who uh, is kind of sad because all of his members really did believe in the cause of, you know, kind of uh, achieving mutant, uh, well, liberation um, through uh, violent and terrorist methods. While Strife really didn't believe any of this, he was manipulating them the entire time. Um, and so he made his appearance in 86 and it was about uh, 14 issues later in the final issue of new mutants before, like I said, it got renamed to X-Force um, that at the very end, it's this great uh, little, like uh, almost like a post credits reveal. If you read um, issue 100 where strife reveals all along, cause he's never taken his helmet off that um, under that shiny sharp uh, uh, helmet, he has the face of cable and they didn't, explain it at all he just it just ends the story with this like that's a very recognizable cable's face with like you know the scar and the glowing eye and all that kind of stuff um so strife had been building up into some mystery that people wanted answers for um and uh it, it's funny considering that reveal and this story and executioner song um nisieza had actually pushed for originally Strife to be the son of Scott and Maddie Pryor and for Cable to be the misshapen clone. And while that doesn't, um, is, wasn't canonically what landed for the character and the role, um, it is themes that are played with in the story in that if you read Executioner Song and other Strife stories, Strife constantly plays with this like confusing game of like, no, no, I'm the real one. You're the clone. If you guys have been watching the Invincible series on Amazon, um, the the two uh, clone uh, musclehead geniuses, they constantly play with that of like, who's the real one? Who's the fake one? Um, which uh, I, f I find quite humorous. Um, and so, in fact, I think there's an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. What was it? Six Day? That I think kind of deals with that a little bit. Um, I'm here to make 
plenty of references um, from other pop culture and connect them to X-Men. That's my job as host of this show on top of like teaching you guys, here's how to understand these stories. So if you pick up Executioner Song, you have at least some idea of what's going on, who these characters are, who's this shiny man with the red cape that uh, is the crown prince of mutant kind, the chaos bringer. Strife has so many good names. He is, um, he's basically a drag queen. Um, which I know I've compared other X-Men characters to drag queens. Um, it's almost like all these characters are queer coded, especially the villains. Um, but yeah, Strife is uh, over the top and uh, just bombastic in all the best ways. Um, uh, another interesting thing about Executioner Song as they were planning this and they were like at this retreat was that um, the whole idea was for this to be kind of like a, a gathering point for all the big X-Men villains. Give the X-Men readers this big moment where all the X-Men villains kind of uh, join in. And, and you see that in that this involves Mr. Sinister and, and it involves Apocalypse and his horsemen and the Dark Riders and it involves Strife and the Mutant Liberation Front and all this is going on. Um, and they had originally planned for Magneto also to be involved, who was at the time, if you remember, at the end of the first x-men story in this reboot uh, or this relaunch in 1991 he was supposed to be dead um and so this was going to be like this you know they wanted this to be like his reveal um but uh it didn't quite happen but there's actually a really interesting fact about they they wanted magneto come back much later they wanted to kind of save him for another time which i think was great because fatal attractions is wonderful um with uh, the talking of uh, with them talking about bringing Magneto in, it was actually uh, writer Peter David. Yeah, it is Peter David. I got the name right. Sorry, I question my memory on names and numbers constantly. Um, I'm holding in a lot of information on the X Men and trying to sound like a coherent person. Um, spoiler: I don't. Uh, but Peter David, he actually at this retreat in planning Executioner's Song, he joked about Magneto coming back and ripping the adamantium skeleton out of Wolverine. Um, if you guys remember Fatal Attractions, that might sound very familiar and would not be used in Executioner Song, but would happen a year later. And it's interesting to read um, about Peter David and Fabian Nicieza talking about this uh, joke that uh, Peter David made. Um, David calls it a joke, but the the accounting says that um, when he said this out loud, no one laughed because everyone thought it was a cool idea, which makes sense. They used it later, but Peter was like, then Wolverine will die. And they're like, no, 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 he's got, he's got a, a healing factor. He'll be fine. Like, no, if you pull his skeleton out, he'll just be just flub and, and muscle and, and brain. Um, and they're like, no, no, we'll figure it out because it, Peter was like thinking that Magneto would just full on rip his skeleton out. And they later kind of translated into adamant, uh, uh, Magneto pulls the adamantium off of his skeleton and kind of pulls it through his pores so that Wolverine could still survive and actually kick off Wolverine having bone claws for like eight years in Wolverine comics. Um, so, uh, a joke led to quite a lot of story later on. Um, but yeah, it didn't, in, it, it didn't involve Magneto, but it did involve the, a lot of big baddies, um, which, uh, I always enjoy when there's a lot of, uh, recognizable and fun villains in an X-Men story. I've made this very clear. I think the X-Men villains are the best villains ever created. Um, which makes sense, uh, why they've been incorporated into so much of their stories and even be often become part of the heroes later on people like apocalypse and juggernaut and black Tom Cassidy and all that kind of thing. Black Tom Cassidy, no, just black Tom. Um, 
actually is he Cassidy? I think he is like the cousin of Sean Cassidy. Again, I can't keep all my facts straight. Um, but to keep my facts straight, I will at least at this point remember to tell you what issues this covers. You can find this like in uh, in big collections, and so if you want to read this as a big collection, that's the easiest way to do it. Like they've got the X Men milestones, which are trade paperbacks, and then if you read it on like Marvel Unlimited, you can find a a, a collection there, a reading guide. But in case you don't have that, this is Uncanny X Men two ninety four to two ninety seven, X Factor eighty four to eighty six. Technically, Uncanny X Men two ninety seven is an epilogue but it's part of the story x-men volume 2 14 number 14 through 16 and then x-force number 16 through 19 and 19 is also an epilogue um and then technically uh part of it also is uh they released these this book called strikes uh strife's strike file um which is something that marvel comics uh does a lot where there are these kind of like almost like encyclopedias of the characters um which is makes sense considering these were being released in a pre-internet era and a pre-trade paperbacks era so like if you didn't know who all these characters were and you didn't have a funny little podcast uh, uh led by this old queer dude um you might not be able to understand who polaris is and and the x factor and wolfsbane and all that um and so it was that it was i i I bought a lot of these like almost like marvel handbooks and encyclopedias that had facts and information and, and background on these characters what's really interesting about this particular one strife's strike file is that it actually included several characters that hadn't been released yet in the comics um, it had, I know it had Grade and Creed, who would later be a big uh, villain in the X Men comics, but it also had Apocalypse's son, um, Holocaust, in it. But what's extra interesting about the the Holocaust entry is that he wouldn't appear for years later in the X Men comics, and on top of that, he wouldn't appear until he was in the Age of Apocalypse story, and the 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 file that's in Strife Strike File for Holocaust is a version of the character that's never been seen. So you can see like things change in these comics and in these writers offices. So they have plans, but you know, depending on what happens in the future, stuff doesn't quite work out. And we've talked about that a lot in, in episodes of the show where there are just unfinished, uh, you know, plot points and stories in the X-Men comics. And that's just the way it goes. It's kind of similar with like TV shows. You know, if your TV show gets canceled before you can finish it, sorry, the story just goes unsaid um firefly fans um but that's enough about like what was going on with the creation of this story i want to get to the crux of what i want to talk about which is strife um i've made it clear i I love i have a certain draw to certain villains i was quite ecstatic about getting to talk about mystique a lot and so you clearly can tell i love her um i love strife uh he is a creation um created by both rob liefeld and louise simonson Louis Simonson was a fantastic writer um, for years um, for the X-Men. Um, but unfortunately, uh, it appears, uh, according to certain accounts, that she was kind of ousted by Rob Liefeld. Um, I don't have all the details on how that works, but um, the nice end of the story is that Louise um, and her husband, Walt, um, who also did a lot of X-Men work, um, a lot of artwork for the X-Men while Luis did a lot of writing. Um, they have come back and done plenty of X-Men. That's the fun 
story about the X-Men, even Chris Claremont. A lot of these writers got either ousted or left and maybe not have been on the best terms, but they've all come back. They've all found their way back to writing for the X-Men. Um, and even even Jonathan Hickman, who um, kind of left the Krakoan era before he intended to um, because of like artistic differences, it seems um, he's back writing uh, Marvel comics. Uh, he's uh, penning gods right now, which is actually quite fun. If you if you want something new to read by Jonathan Hickman, Hickman, um, it's an acronym, but it's uh, just said gods. Um, so, yeah, like I said, Strife appears in New Mutants 86 and he's leading the MLF. Um, he was originally actually, um, a, the, a future version of cable cable was this time traveler. Um, he didn't have a full backstory that we have now. And strife was just this idea of this, the future version of cable that turns evil. So like if cable at age 50 is a mutant savior, um, then cable at age 55 went evil. And that's strife, um, that didn't stick obviously um but then strife like i said was supposed to be the real version and cable was this clone that was infected by this virus and and uh you know you know the misshapen frankenstein version of strife while strife was the the villain cable would be the hero version of him the hero clone um and so again these are things were were loosey-goosey and and you know they introduce these characters and they can kind of like uh figure out how to reveal their their pasts when they want to and sometimes those pasts can change before they're able to reveal them um like i said about during the inferno uh episode that maddie was supposed to replace gene gene was supposed to stay dead um but you know the powers that be and the ones in charge of the paychecks they make their choices and sometimes that can affect the stories hopefully it doesn't affect them for the worse and that we still get good stuff um but that's a that's a fact about uh you know art for business um and uh, it was in Cable, uh, a, a little uh, short series called Cable, Blood, and Metal, which um, uh, be- came out before Executioner's Song. I think right before, if I'm getting my facts straight. Um, that's where Strife reveals to Cable um, that they are both connected to Apocalypse. Strife is kind of turning into an antagonist, you know, an arch nemesis for Cable, Um uh, and, uh, that's where strife reveals that, um, him and, uh, cable are connected through apocalypse again, being mysterious about it. Um, and they would kind of struggle for years about who was the clone, who was the real one and that kind of thing. And actually it wasn't until after executioner song in a cable, um, solo title miniseries that, uh, while I, I can't explain it, the strife is psychically haunting cable because he doesn't have a body anymore so he's kind of like hitchhiking like think like Voldemort in the first uh harry potter movie um but it's in that miniseries that they finally learn and canonize that cable is the real one and strife was this fail-safe clone um uh created by the ones who were caretaking of cable um this uh uh, a character called mother ascani um and her clan and they basically Cable was prophesied to be like the savior um, against this world that was living under the, the you know, the tyrannical thumb of Apocalypse. Um, and Strife was cloned in case Cable didn't survive the techno-organic virus that Apocalypse infected him with. Um, that's why Cable has sent to the future by Cyclops and, and Jean Grey is to save him because um, Apocalypse finds out that Cable was intended to be Nathan, 
Nathan was intended to be this powerful mutant that would finally overthrow Apocalypse and p- part of the machinations of Mr. Sinister. Um, and so he infects him with the techno-organic virus. And so to save him, he has to go to the future. Um, and so that's why Cable is like part machine, if that wasn't made clear yet. I don't know if I've been explicit about that. Why does Cable have all that metal stuff? Because he was infected by a virus that is constantly only being kept in check. Um, the same virus that is infected into uh, Professor Xavier. I think about the same virus. Um, it's But Cable is able to keep it in check because he uses his telekinesis at all times to keep it in check, which is why he is less powerful than Strife because Strife is unhindered by the need to focus on the technogranic virus. Kind of what I talked about where X-23 only has adamantium in her claws, and so her mutant healing factor is not constantly fighting adamantium poison like Wolverine's is. So X-23 has a stronger acting mutant healing factor than Wolverine. Um, I hope half of that made sense. Um, so who is Strife? Um, if, if you know, beyond just the uh, the 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 clone of cable um strife how do you how do you how do you how do you summarize strife he's a nepo baby (laughs) and he is the worst kind he is the most stuck up i'm destined for greatness nepo baby um it's why he comes in oh there's such a good panel in the early parts of executioner song where strife reveals himself with his great shining armor and red cape and he is just like it is i strife the crown prince of mutant kind and he has this list of things that he really should have a herald talking about all this stuff for him um but he is so full of himself and he's full of himself um thanks to mostly apocalypse (laughs) apocalypse um kidnapped strife strife was cloned from cable and then uh made uh the same age as as nathan um through science and then apocalypse kidnaps him and raises him um not for altruistic reasons he uh while on the surface apocalypse names strife his heir um and and that's where strife gets his like you know his confidence and his like i'm i'm meant for greatness because daddy is in charge and and i'm gonna be like daddy someday very i'm you know what i was about to name a certain family right now that is often in the news and is very rich and proud of themselves and daddy is is doing a lot of interesting things in our world right now but you know what i'm not going to name that family right now but if you're thinking of that family yes strife is like a member of that family (laughs) but um he wasn't going to be his heir Uh, apocalypse was just using him to eventually take over his body um and kind of part of apocalypse's plans of like immortality apocalypse is always doing things to keep himself around for forever whether it be you know recharging in a in a uh, a chamber in egypt or taking over the body of a very strong telepathic telekinetic mutant um but the problem is is that strife being a clone actually ruins those plans uh, apocalypse thinks that he has uh uh kidnapped the actual real one but when he finds out it's the clone it actually like kind of puts apocalypse in almost like a weakened state he can't take over the body for some reason because of story um and actually it's through that that state of like uh his plans being foiled that it's actually a version of scott gene a young cable and strife's nanny um what was his name chevere i think um they actually defeat apocalypse 
um, in that timeline in the future. I don't know why I'm telling you about uh, future timeline stuff, but there you go. You get to know about how that version of Apocalypse um, is defeated. And it's actually uh, Strife's uh, nanny, Shaver, uh, who actually tries to then raise him after Apocalypse and tries to deprogram him. Um, spoiler, it doesn't work, and he's a terrible, terrible little dude um, who then goes back 2,000 years eventually and you know, dons this persona of strife, um, to cause havoc in our current timeline. That's how we have strife in the X-Men comics. Now, um, there's an interesting fact about this whole situation that I found kind of puzzling about the executioner's song story in that it's implied in the story that, um, or at least how I read it was that apocalypse, um, attempted or actually thought that he murdered strife um even with a specific sword that strife then stabs apocalypse with to talk about story items that never came to fruition that never was like what fleshed out how it ended this story that i'm telling you is how cape uh, strife and apocalypse story ended um and I, I guess that's why i bring that up so that if you're reading this you're like "Ooh, look at that pretty uh sword sticking out of apocalypse i wonder what the story is there you're not gonna get an end to that story um but a fun little fact about strife and apocalypse connection is that in the story of executioner's song the whole base that strife is using during it is actually the same base that apocalypse was using when he infected baby nathan with the techno organic virus so it's all coming full circle um like i said at the top of this episode um executioner song is really the most interesting part of the strife story this and like the cable story that comes out afterwards there's a whole lot of cable uh strife stuff that happens after this all the way up until you know uncanny x-force and even the recent x-men stories um of like you know our modern time right now um our present day not modern time present day but i'm not going to go over that like i did with nomad not nomad nimrod um mostly because it's a lot and but uh Frankly, it's because it's it's a lot of convoluted time travel mess that um, I don't find as interesting or as fun as this story. So that's why we're going to just kind of keep this here and uh, use this as an excuse to talk to you about Strife, who should now be one of your favorite villains. I hope I convert everybody here who listens to the show to loving these villains as much as I do. Like, I hope you're crazy about this pink uh, robot named Nimrod or this, you know, blue... Uh, lesbian trans icon mystique um i'm I, this is that's my intent I, everybody's like i like cyclops i like rogue i like storm like what about the villains do you love mr sinister who's like a uh over the top theater teacher <laughs> do you like him now because i love him um but yeah strife is a big part of the executioner song story the other big part of the executioner's song um, comes at the end of it, the, like during the, kind of the epilogue of the whole story. And that is the release of the legacy virus. I've talked about the legacy virus a few times in the show. We've not gone to a lot of detail about it. Um, someday I'd eventually like to do a little bit more about the legacy virus and also specifically read you guys through the end of the legacy virus, which is a story that wrecked me when I read it. Um, and I love that it wrecked me. Um, but just in case you're like, I don't know what this is at the end of the story where Sinister, he, if you guys remember in the story, if you read it, what happens is Sinister tricks the three remaining horsemen of Apocalypse, um, who is Caliban, who is now the death horseman. Um, and, uh, the, and it's famine and war. Pestilence got killed 
accidentally by funnily enough a team of like mutant kids called power pack so that's why there's only three horsemen and also archangel's not death anymore because he was death but now he's not but um he sinister tricks the horsemen as you know presenting himself as apocalypse to get scott and gene captured to hand over to strife who is doing that in return uh, or in exchange for what is called 2000 years of like the future genetic information of scott summers and gene gray because if you if it hasn't been made very clear yet especially if if you listen to the inferno episode of the show mr sinister is obsessed with the genetic potential and nature of scott summers um the summers family first and foremost but specifically um the what would come from the marriage of scott summers genes and gene gray's genes and so getting two thousand years of that information would be so important to mr sinister but he is tricked um he is tricked by uh strife and it's at the end of the story that they open the canister and it's seemingly empty um but it's not empty and you can uh, there's a little bit of a of a, a little nod to what's to come where the gentleman um that uh was his name like gordon i think his name is like gordon opens it and at the end of it he kind of has a little cough and mr sinister's like do something about that cough um that is the release of an invisible deadly virus called the legacy virus which would eventually become this um it wasn't it was like there's no way of you know kind of dancing around it. it was a metaphor for the aids epidemic um it was the release of the hiv virus um and uh you know, th- this would be the opus of Strife's whole intent. While he obviously was like, you know, trying to bring about justice to the parents that had wronged him, um, this was his end game was to uh, release this virus. It would be a part of the X-Men stories in comics for eight years, 1993 to 2001 the legacy virus would be around and we would be a big deal. It would really kind of kick off with the death of Ileana Rasputin, um, Colossus's sister, which was part of what led to fatal attractions and Colossus joining up with Magneto eventually as a part of his acolytes. Um, yeah. Uh, Ileana would be the first death in the comics, but not the last. There'd be actually a lot of deaths in the comics from the legacy virus. Um, and uh, Strife had stolen this virus from actually apocalypse in the future it was originally intended to kill non-mutants it was kind of apocalypse's plan to finally cull the remaining herd of humans in his in his time um but strife modified it and he had originally modified it in order to create kind of a species war between humans and mutants but the the virus even evolved beyond what strife's intent was and became this airborne virus that infected just everyone it came in contact with um, a lot of people have mixed feelings about the legacy virus and its comparison to the HIV epidemic. Some people think it's a little bit of a blunt um, metaphor, and, and admittedly, it is. I mean, even um, Fabian Nicieza kind of admits to that. Um, but I look at it with more rose-colored glasses, maybe. But it, it, I think it was an important way that writers in the X-Men stories could actually tell this story this aids story in this sci-fi adventure setting in a way that corporate would allow it because i have to remind everybody that while the x-men get to finally and wonderfully be as gay as they want 
Um, that wasn't the case in the X-Men comics for years. For years, it was like a no homo rule in Marvel Comics. And it was like, we have North Star. He's the one out and gay mutant. And you get that one. And he's on Alpha Flight. He's on the Canadian mutant team. Um, and there was a lot of queer coding in the villains and in the, the characters. Even in this story, Executioner's Song, like... There's Iceman and there's uh, Shatterstar and Richter and all of them are queer coded um, and Tempo and all that. And it wasn't until like years later that they got to be canonically recognized as the, as queer representation. And so this was a way to tell that story. Um, and I always remember the legacy virus stories as being uncomfortable to read because I you know, I remember reading and be like, I don't want to hear about this nasty disease that's killing people. But what's interesting about that was I think that's not, I think I know that's how people treated the leg, the, the HIV epidemic. They didn't want to hear about it. It was just this weird disease that's killing the homos. Um, not to be crass about it, but that's really how it was thought. And, uh, it's sad to say that those stories weren't being told in a lot of mainstream media. It was wanted to be, people just wanted to forget about it or just villainize it as like God's, you know, justice on these abominations, which is something that is connected to the X-Men dearly. The X-Men are a story of the minority group. The X-Men are the story of the others. The X-Men are, are kids of color. The X-Men are, are queer kids and that kind of thing. And so I know as a queer kid that, you know, I connected to the X-Men and it was so important that these stories were being told. Um, so in the end, I think the legacy virus is actually a very interesting and important part of the X-Men history. And I'm glad that it was released. And I, and I, and I think it was, it was done in an interesting way and, and a, a way that the story is, you know, worthwhile and, and entertaining um, and sometimes fun and sometimes horrifying. Um, I got in a little bit of a soapbox about legacy virus, didn't I? Um, you'll have to excuse me for that. Um, but I wanted to address it because it is a, a big contentious part of the X-Men history, but I, I don't see it as a bad thing. I see it as a good thing. Um, another thing I see as a good thing is the, there's beyond just the legacy virus. There's a lot of great themes that are in the executioner song, which is why I wanted to, I picked it for us to talk about it because it really showcases the strength of the x-men comics i know i say that about a lot of our crossover events but this is a good one i pick a lot of the good ones you know inferno is a good one fatal attraction is a good one you know all new x-men is a good one this is a good one read executioner song i know it's 14 issues it is long it is long but it is interesting and fun it it's 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 not even like a tie-ins issue where it's like oh yeah this is the x factor story and this x first like no it's episodic it's chapter by chapter and it jumps around from uncanny x-men to x-men to x-force in fact there's an issue of x factor in this that does not include a single member of x factor in the story it's like wolverine bishop and cable having shenanigans um that's how much this was just a story they were telling throughout these titles and the story they were telling was this is a story about consequences to your actions and i find that very important to kind of bring up this is you know cyclops leaving maddie you know, for Gene, who's resurrected because of the Phoenix, this had ripple effects for decades. And we've covered a few of those. I mean, we talked about Inferno, but Cable himself is a ripple effect of that. He wouldn't have existed in the way that he is if not for Cyclops' actions. And, and then, you know, so on and so forth. Strife was a result of that. Um, and, and even like, you know, like we just talked about, like, this is funny to say, but Cyclops leaving Maddie led to the legacy virus. Um, if not for that, there would have been no legacy virus. 
Um, Strife himself is a character that falsely blames his parents for his issues and his own actions. Um, and when he's faced with the falseness of these, this, this truth that he thought he's only left with his rage to console him because he didn't take, you know, into account that he's responsible for his actions, not Cyclops and Jean Grey, as he tries to make very clear throughout the story. Um, it's him in the end. I mean, the moral of the story is that we are all responsible for our own actions, despite our past or trauma. Trauma is important, but what we do with it is of much more paramount importance. Um, it's, it's the decision of, do you continue the hurt or do you stop the hurt? And this is a story about strife desperately trying to continue the hurt and honestly cable trying to end it. Um, and, and speaking of cable and, and strife, this is also a story about like that the lines of where heroes and villains, you know, begins and ends is a blurred place, which I think is a, such a fun part of X-Men stories that the, you know, the teams themselves, the X-Men themselves are constantly dealing with being on either side of the law. I mean, you got the government not wanting to protect them or even recognize them in like any real official capacity. Hence, like they constantly are, are creating these little islands and communes to stay safe, you know, and they don't work out like ever, but it's their only way of being able to protect themselves in a world where the government's like, no, we like the Avengers. <laughs> uh, I mean, even Professor X in this story in Execution Song, Execution Song at the beginning when he's at the concert for Lila Cheney's concert, he is still in the closet. He is not an out and about mutant. It wouldn't be until Grant Morrison's new, new all new X-Men um, that, or new X-Men that he would finally come out of the closet as an X-Men. That's, that's, that is a decade later. Um, X Factor themselves, uh, or no, yeah, X Factor, they're like trying to work with the, within the system that's constantly, you know, either screwing them over or making them compromise their true mission of helping the mutants. Um, and so they're the version of like the X-Men that like is working with the government. Does that make them villains? Does that make them heroes? It's hard to tell. X-Force on the other side is a paramilitary group that's formed to get done what the heroes can't get done, like in the, the brightness of the day. And they themselves are being hunted by their own teammates, but at the same time also need to work with them. Uh, Cable never fully cements himself as a hero or a villain to people because he's working with future knowledge and age that is constantly, you know, kind of in making him work outside of a system that he does not recognize or think works. And that's what makes him a a bit of an interesting character. Um, Even apocalypse. I thought apocalypse in this story is wildly interesting, which is um, this, this is a good story to show you why I think apocalypse is worth paying attention to in the comics not just because he's like a cool design or or a big you know baddie he helps the x-men in this story and admits that his goal is not world domination but to genuinely foster the survival of the mutant race i mean all of this everything i'm talking about you know uh the story behind the scenes and the x office the you know strife as a character the legacy virus all these themes this is you know this is what 90s x-men was all about um this is why they got so big and why they've stayed around and why they're so amazing. Um, it's, it's family drama. It's a minority group dealing with, you know, just existing in an, in an uh, oppressive system in a country that doesn't fully recognize you or recognize even what it's done to you. I mean, these are the stories that made X-Men into the behemoth. It once was and still is. And frankly, it's why I do this podcast. So, hope you check out executioner song if you haven't um and i hope you continue to check out this podcast i appreciate you guys being here be good be kind be brave and i will see you guys next time